That's awesome, isn't it? <laughs> One more round of applause to fathers. Well, what's up, Vineyard? I'm Luke. I'm the director of Young Adults Ministry here. One of the youth pastor or Young Adults pastors along with Will. And um, happy Father's Day to all the fathers. Speaking of fathers, this, is, this uh, lovely thing up here is actually something that my father recently gave me. You see, before my dad, um, where my dad is now is he's one of two CEOs of a quickly growing innovation consulting company out of Norwood. But before he was involved with Seek, he was a youth pastor. And this is one of the props he used to use in explaining um, the gospel, grace versus works, as a youth pastor. And so recently, my dad was cleaning out the garage and he found this thing, which is over 30 years old. And, you know, it came up to me and said, Hey, Luke, you know, I found this, this old scale that I had a guy built that we, I used to use to explain grace versus works. Um, do you want it? And I looked at it and I was like, No, not even a little bit. <laughs> um, but instead, so he's like, All right, well, I'm going to throw it out. So he put it out on the curb to be thrown away. And then I went inside and I don't know. I was just sitting there. I don't know if it was um, the Lord speaking to me or what, but I just felt like I was supposed to take it. And so I went back. I was like, you know what, Dad? You know, I'm gonna, let me take this scale. Um, I might be able to use it. I had no intention of ever um, using it, but it's Father's Day. And so I felt it was fitting that I would bring it up here because my dad used to use it. And also because who I am as a pastor, a leader, and a man has been so greatly influenced by my dad. And so I thought that even if I took this and never used it, it would kind of be that symbolic thing of him passing down to me what he had worked up and what he had achieved. Um, But I decided to use it anyway. So let me show you the Grace versus Works illustration that my dad uh, has taught on before with this same exact scale. So a lot of people, when they're thinking about how do I get into heaven Or how do I avoid hell? How do I live a meaningful life? What they always come back to is, well, I just need to be a good person. doesn't matter what religion, really. doesn't matter if I go to church or not. I just need to be a good person, and then I'll be right before God or right with the universe or whatever. And by being a good person, usually they mean doing good things. Or at least doing more good things than bad things. And so then life is this kind of this weighing act where you need to just, if you just do more good things and bad things in your life, then you'll be a good person. And if you're a good person, you'll be right before God and have the afterlife, etc. And so hypothetically, let's say that I am in my mid thirties, I'm married with kids and let's look at a day of my life, maybe today, um, on kind of my good, and let's weigh my good versus my bad works. So it's Sunday morning, but let's say last night, you know, I drank a little bit too much. And so boom, there's one bad one, but Hey, I'm in church this morning. So we can kind of put a, put one on this side. And then we go out to eat after this and I'm really nasty to the waitress. So there's another one there, but then I give her a massive tip. So boom, we're good now. And, uh, Then I'm feeling really great about my good tip that I gave her, and she doesn't seem so appreciative. So I kind of give her a harsh word as I leave, and there we are again. Get home, and because I feel bad about that, I am extra nice to my wife, and so there we are. 
But then I uh, am inattentive to my children the rest of the day because I want to watch TV. Um, and so, boom, there we are. And I end up right here. Um, <laughs> so that kind of seems at first maybe logical or reasonable. Maybe not. But this is exhausting. Constantly weighing every good thing and every bad thing you do, that is not good news whatsoever. That is exhausting. That is tiring. And it's like you have to do this every day. And it's kind of like, you know, some days you have good days, some days you have bad days. And then you kind of, if you have, if all your total days, if you have more good days than bad days and you're a good person, no, we're lucky that's not at all what the message of Christianity is. You see, the gospel says that Jesus came on this side and took away all of our bad stuff and, you know, died for our sins so we don't have to pay for them. But then also he said, you know what? These good works over here, they don't matter either because life is not about balancing the scale. Jesus did not come to help us balance the scale. In fact, he came to completely do away with the scale. And life is now no longer about keeping rules and, and you know, keeping enough rules to do enough good things to be a good person. Life is about being in relationship with God. That's how we're justified before the Lord, from his love and in relationship with him. And that's good news, isn't it? Cool. <laughs> okay, uh, let's pray before we get into it today. So Lord, we love you a whole lot. And I just thank you for, uh, for letting us be here. I thank you that we don't have to balance the scale. Thank you that um, you've done all that for us and that we get to just enjoy a meaningful, loving, joyous relationship with you. So let your presence come. Just be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I want to start with this. You don't have to raise your hand or anything, but be thinking now um, about maybe a phrase or a statement you've heard before that you've heard multiple times throughout your life. Maybe you've even said that statement or phrase to another person, but you've never quite really believed it. It's something you might have heard um, on TV. You may have heard on stage. You may have heard wherever. And then maybe you even found yourself saying it to someone else. But when you really think about that statement or phrase, you don't actually believe it deep down. Be think, what, is, what are examples of those? Well, I asked a group of young adults at our church this question to get some examples to share with you. And actually, the group of young adults that I asked are our new young adult summer interns here at VCNW. So if you're a summer intern and you're sitting in this room, you want to stand up? <laughs> Clap for them. That's Shauna and Celia right up there in the front. Also, there's Brent and Morgan. They are currently out of town on vacation. And then Sanjay, who I guess is running a little bit late. So we can all stare at him when he walks in and make him feel awkward. <laughs> um, but I asked them all, what are things that you have heard before many different times, maybe you've even said, but you haven't quite believed? And I'll read you some of the answers. Celia said, uh, something she's always heard is that you get the worst sunburns when it's cloudy out. Yeah, and I've heard that before too. I never, yeah, like, wow, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. But then she actually was out without sunscreen when it was cloudy and got this like horrific burn on her face with like peeling and red and all that. So I guess that is true. Um, Sanjay said something he's always heard, never 
maybe even said, never believed, was that the grass is greener on the other side. Oh, how cute. All right. Next one. Uh, Shauna, she said, this is the one she, this is the example she gave. If you swallow a watermelon seed, a watermelon will grow inside of you. <laughs> yeah, I can remember being afraid of that as like a little kid. Like, oh, I don't want to swallow one or my stomach's going to rupture and watermelon. Uh, Okay, this next one, I never heard until Morgan brought it up. Maybe it's just a, a, a girl thing, but it says, eating crust makes your hair curly. Has anyone ever heard that before? Really? Man, that's weird. And then Brent, oh, so humble Brent, he, uh, his example was there's no I in team. So, yeah. For me, I can recall a time where I heard something on stage in church, actually. And it was something I'd heard many times. I maybe have even said to other people, but I realized in that moment that it was something I didn't quite believe. I was visiting Wilson probably three or four years ago in Jacksonville, Florida, and Wilson was there doing missions work with YWAM. We got down to where he was, we're staying with him, and then we attended his church on Sunday morning, and the pastor there was giving a presentation on the gospel on forgiveness and such. And he is sharing his heart about the gospel. And he says, we are as righteous as Christ if we are in Christ. And he actually had the whole church repeat that out loud. I am as righteous as Christ. Now that's something that I had heard before multiple times, maybe even said to someone. But when the moment came, And when we were all asked to actually say that out loud, I am as righteous as Christ, I couldn't say it for some reason. Everyone around me kind of said it resoundingly, but I was sitting there in my chair and I couldn't get myself to say, I am as righteous as Christ. Because deep down, I didn't believe that to be true. Another example that God can heal people's bodies. I remember hearing that in church all the time growing up in the vineyard. I remember telling people, oh yeah, of course God can heal. Of course he can heal our bodies. But for a long time in my life, never did I actually pray for someone to be healed of an illness or a disease when they were sick. I never prayed for them. And the reason I never prayed for them is because I didn't actually believe that God could heal them if I did so. There are these things as Christians, I think, a lot of, I can name many different examples of things that we have continually heard and maybe we've even said them to other people. But in reality, we don't actually believe them. And the example that I want to talk about this morning is actually one of those things that I think we oftentimes hear and, but never believe. And I think this one principle that we're going to talk about, that if we all really could just deep down believe it to be true, that it would be just incredible breakthrough for the kingdom of God. I think that this is the enemy's number one method of assault on the church is to get us to not believe this principle. The number one, his greatest plan of attack, his go-to. And this principle is just a Bible verse. It's not in my own words or paraphrase. It's literally just the verse. And it comes out of Romans 8.1. So let's read that. Romans 8.1 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I think this is something that we hear oftentimes. 
and we even say to others, oh yeah, we're not condemned if we're in Jesus. But deep down we think about it. A lot of us don't really believe it. And before I explain why I think that, let me kind of define what I mean by condemnation. So I looked up the Greek word for condemnation, and it was katakrima, which literally means condemnation in Greek. Some words in the English Bible, like salvation, when you go back to the Greek word, which is soteria, you uh, can find many different synonyms for that word. So the word deliverance, preservation, safety, all of those can be used in place of salvation. However, when you look at the word for condemnation, there is no other synonyms. It's just condemnation. So what does condemnation mean? Well, I looked that up, and the definition of condemnation is to be pronounced guilty or to be pronounced unworthy for use or service. It's a pronunciation of guilt, pronunciation of unworthiness. And so what Romans 8.1 is saying is that as long as we are in Christ, we cannot be pronounced guilty. And we cannot be pronounced unworthy for the work and service of the Lord. And that's good news, isn't it? Yeah. So why do I feel like people have trouble believing this? Well, I think oftentimes we don't accept the truth that we, are, that we cannot be pronounced guilty because there's maybe one or two things, past sins, maybe continuing sins in our life that we can't forgive ourselves for. For example, I was listening to a podcast by a guy named Greg Boyd. He's a pastor and just a really great public speaker. And Greg Boyd was speaking at this church. And at this church, he encountered this woman who had become a Christ follower six months prior to that. And he learned that this woman, before she had come to Christ, had been a prostitute on the streets, had been addicted to multiple drugs, and actually sold her baby girl into human trafficking to support her habit and never saw her again. And then she'd come to Christ, and after she had kind of gotten out of that addicted state, I can just imagine the guilt and the condemnation that would come from that. And how hard it must be for, for, you know, for her to believe there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I think that a lot of us have things that we have done or are doing that we feel like we can't forgive ourselves for. Yeah, maybe God can forgive us, but we can't forgive ourselves. But the truth is, according to Romans 8.1, according to the gospel of the kingdom, no matter what we have done, if we are in Christ, we simply cannot be pronounced guilty. And we cannot be pronounced unworthy. Jesus covered both our you know, easy sins, like a stingy tip, and also you know, those sins that we feel like we can't even forgive ourselves for. That is the gospel of the kingdom. But as we all know, this idea, this concept of guilt is extremely powerful. For example, let me tell a story from my childhood. I had a friend growing up who was that friend that had the really guilty, sensitive conscience. So whenever me and my friends would kind of get into trouble and do, you know, get into some mischief, he would be the one who would tell his parents hours later. He just had a super guilty conscience. 
And actually, that best friend was Wilson Cochran. (laughs) I remember a time when Wilson and I and my younger brother, Joey, decided that we wanted to TP a house. So we gathered the toilet paper and, you know, one roll every two days that the parents didn't catch on, you know. And we finally gathered enough toilet paper and decided we're going to go out this night and and or this it was actually during the day, which was a poor decision. Go out this day and TP one of our neighbors' houses. So we got the toilet paper together and we were all ready to go out, adrenaline pumping. And then we kind of realized this is a little scarier than we thought. You know, we were like we wanted to go TP a neighbor's house, but we were too afraid to actually go through with it. We'd like walk up to it and then walk back. And so we're not sure what to do. We have all this toilet paper. We want to TP a house, but we're afraid. And then Wilson comes up with the brilliant idea. Well, guys, let's just TP my house. <laughs> uh, we're probably 11 or 12 at the time. And so, you know, we sneak me and my parents' house and Wilson's parents' house are three doors down from each other on Springdale Road. So we sneak down the road and we go to uh, TP his house. And Van and Lori were out of town at the time. And so we, you know, we cover every single tree with TP, with a toilet paper. And like, we're like throwing the rolls up. It's coming down. We're ripping it off and throwing it up again. Like we've covered the whole place with toilet paper. It was a really, really good job of TPing if I've ever seen one. And then we run back to my parents' house. You know, again, we're like, we're, we're all excited. And, and then we'll, we talk about it for about a half hour. And then Will's like, all right, well, I'm going to go home. So he goes back to the house. He just TPed. And his sister, Emily, was there. And she had come home and seen our masterpiece. And so she walks up to Will. And remember, Will has that guilty conscience. And she walks up to Will and she's like, Wilson, you know, look what happened to the trees. I'm not sure what we're going to do. I think I, and before she could even finish what she was saying, Wilson's like, I did it. It was me. (laughs) I did it. It was me. And, And so, you know, she called our parents and me and Joey and, and Wilson had to clean up all the toilet paper. And, and another time, I remember there was an uh, abandoned building right near our house. It's like a, just the size of a house. And we decided that we wanted to get inside of it and explore whatever it was that was in there. So we got hammers and walked. We were probably thir- I was in seventh grade, probably 13, 14. Got hammers, walked over to this abandoned house. And this was dumb. We decided to climb up a poison ivy vine to get to the roof. Bad, bad decision. So we get up on the roof and we have this, uh, there's this window about this big or so. And we have this hammer and we're like pinging out the glass and it's like shards all around. We're trying to figure out how to get in. And then Will just kicks the whole thing and it opens up. And so then we crawl in and, and we find all these artifacts in there that we thought were cool. I don't remember what they were, but we kind of take these like treasures out of this abandoned building and bring them back to my parents' house and hide them in this dog cage that was in my backyard. Well, my dad had been looking for us. And so Will had already gone home at this time, but he comes to the backyard and sees that we're like near this cage. So he walks in to investigate and finds all of our, you know, our booty from the, uh, from the house. (laughs) And he's like, where'd this come from? And so he figured out, okay, dad, we broke into that building. And he's like, was Wilson with you? And being the good friend I was, I was like, nope, just me and Joey. But my dad decides to call Van anyway, because he kind of suspected that Wilson was. And so Van's like, Wilson, I, Jerry just called me and said, Luke and Joey was, were going into this abandoned house and taking stuff. And Wilson's like, I did it. It was me. I did it. <laughs> Guilty conscience. <clears throat> 
Oh, and by the way, that poison ivy, I got it so bad. All over my body, tons of it. It was on my face and like my eyes were swollen, like almost shut. And and uh, I that was seventh grade. I was homeschooled third through sixth grade. And so I had started middle school in seventh grade. And my first week that I was there, like one of like the most popular girls in the school like liked me, I guess. And so we became boyfriend and girlfriend within the first week. And then I walked in the second week and my eyes were like puffed up. <laughs> I walk up to her, hey. And she like gave me one of these looks. Like, Ugh, what's on your face? Well, broke up a day later. I didn't date again until high school. But I had my week of glory in middle school in seventh grade. <laughs> yeah. Guilt. That's where we are. Talking about guilt. So guilt is a powerful thing. But truth is, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is no one who is guilty, no one who is unworthy, if they're in Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And a lot of times I've heard this sermon given And this is kind of where it stops. Look at the verse, understand it's true. Let's move on. But I've always been one who's a bit inquisitive. And I can recall being like excited, you know, oh yeah, cool, no condemnation. But then thinking about it later and being like, wait a minute, why is there no condemnation for us? I get that Jesus took on the punishment we deserved on the cross. But what does that have to do with the guilt I feel when I sin? Why are we not guilty? Why can we not be pronounced guilty? And it just didn't click in my mind for the longest time. And so I'd leave sermons like these not fully understanding and believing that there is no condemnation in Christ. That's why I couldn't say I am as righteous as Christ down in Florida those years ago. Because I simply didn't understand and therefore didn't believe that there is no condemnation. So what I wanted to do for the rest of our time is talk, go deeper. Why is there no condemnation for us when we are in Christ? How is it that we cannot be pronounced guilty? And to do that, I want to start by looking at two verses about the atonement. Atonement is a word that refers to the process that Jesus went through in order to restore us to right relationship with him. That's not a dictionary definition. That's just a Luke definition off the the cuff. But yeah, the atonement, the process Jesus went through to restore us to right relationship with him. I'm going to show you two verses about the atonement. And I think this first verse is going to refer to the idea that Jesus died for our sins. He took our punishment. It's the part of atonement that we have heard most often, I think, in church. The second verse, I think, however, says something very different than the first. It's a different angle on the atonement. And I think that verse is key to why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So let's read this first verse. This is 1 Peter 3.18. And 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This verse, Christ suffered for sins. This sounds like the part of the atonement we've always heard that we incurred wrath and judgment upon ourselves by sinning. And that that punishment that we deserved to to take, that we deserve to experience, Christ actually took that for us on the cross. This is something we've all heard before, right? Yeah. This part of the atonement makes sense. 
Now let me read this other verse, and I think it says something very different. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21, and it says this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin. God the Father made Jesus to be sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. The first verse talked about suffering for sins, but this one is saying that Christ was made to be sin. Or other translation says that he became sin. And I think that him becoming sin, him being sin, is different than him suffering for sins. And I believe that the answer to what it means that Jesus became sin is the answer to why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So, Let's dive in. What does it mean that Christ became sin? What exactly does that mean? The passage I want to go to that I think really defines that well, it's really cool because it's actually from the Old Testament. And so this is a prophecy of the coming Savior. I think in this prophecy, we find the answer to what it means that Christ became sin. So let's look at 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14. This is God speaking to King David, telling King David about his descendant who would be the savior of the world. And there's some really cool stuff in this verse from 2 Samuel. This is written 800 years before Jesus lived. So let's read it. 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 14. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings. Okay. So there's a lot of cool stuff in that, isn't there? I remember when I first read this, um, I got super excited at all of the, the prophecies that did come true. For example, Jesus was of the Davidic line, meaning he was King David's descendant. So we see here in 2 Samuel, it says, from your offspring, this one shall come. So that's cool. Then it talks about how he will establish the throne of this coming Messiah's kingdom forever. And we know that through Jesus that the eternal kingdom of God was ushered in. So like, man, that's cool too. Then it says that uh, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. We know God the father was father to God the son, Jesus. It says at the end that he, that he will be punished with a rod such as mortals use. So a human form of punishment, the crucifixion, with blows inflicted by mortals, with blows inflicted by human beings, by the Romans. There's so much cool stuff in this passage. But... I think you all might know what I'm talking about. There's one phrase in here that really caught me off guard when I first read it. And I didn't know what to make of it. It's at the end of verse 14 there, or the, towards the end, when it says, when he commits iniquity. Iniquity is simply another word for sin. So this passage is saying that the common Savior would commit sin. Now, we know that that's, that can't be true from the New Testament. Many passages in the New Testament says Jesus never sinned. 
He lived a sinless life. He was perfect in the eyes of God. So what does it mean here when this prophecy from the Old Testament says when he commits iniquity? Again, I think the answer to this question is the answer to what it means that Christ became sin, which is the answer to what it means that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I was thinking about this, what it means that he, that he, uh, when he commits iniquity, what that phrase means. And I think there's kind of three options that I've heard before, people trying to explain it. I don't actually agree with any of these three options, but I've heard these three options before. First one people say is, well, I guess this was an error in the Bible that this part shouldn't have been in there. Um, and yeah, okay. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because we know the Bible is God breathed. Why would God breathe an error into his own word? So I kind of throw that option out. That doesn't make sense to me. Second option is, well, I guess Jesus did sin a couple times. You know, maybe he sinned once or twice, but again, the new Testament passages say when he, that he never sinned, he was a perfect sinless life. So that can't be it. I've heard some people say, oh, maybe it's when he flipped the tables over, or maybe it's when he cursed the fig tree. But again, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, This is what I've come to think it means. And this is, I think, the key to why there's no condemnation in us. What, What the author of 2 Samuel is referring to here is that Jesus, when he was on the cross, he would take our punishment for sins, but also he would take our guilt for sins, meaning that when God the Father looked at his son Jesus on the cross, he saw Jesus committing every sin that we had ever committed. That in the eyes of God the Father, Jesus committed all of our sins, not us. And the analogy I always use for this is that it's like getting a speeding ticket. If I were to speed, get behind a car, go on 75, and get a ticket, and then Wilson were to pay that ticket for me, he would be taking my punishment just like Jesus took our punishment, but he wouldn't be taking my guilt. I would still be the one who was guilty of speeding. But that's not the gospel. That's not what the cross did. Jesus, yeah, he took, the, he took our ticket. He paid our fine. But also in the, God, in the eyes of God the Father, he was the one who was behind the wheel. He took our guilt as well. And that is what it means that Jesus became sin. And that is why when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in those few short moments, God the Father looked in horror at his son because he saw his son committing the sins of the world. And that is why there is no guilt for us because all that guilt died with Jesus on the cross. And that is why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that is good news, isn't it? So what do we do with this? Um, That was a whole lot of conceptual stuff, but how do we, what is, what do we do with this practically? I think there's many things we can do, but one thing I want to touch on is this repentance and confession are super important parts of the Christian walk. But I think that oftentimes we as Christians confuse confession and repentance for meaning I'm saying sorry to God for what I did. What repentance means, the Greek word metanoia, it simply means to change your mind or to change the way you think. It has nothing to do with saying sorry. Confession is simply agreeing with God that what you did 
was sin. Saying, yep, God, that was not in your will. That was sin, what I did. Again, nothing to do with saying sorry. And I don't want to be legalistic about this and say, oh, if you ever say sorry to God and you have like an intimate moment with him that, you know, you're doing something terrible. But what I think, but when we constantly say sorry to God, I think what we're doing is thinking that we need to make things right with him whenever we mess up, whenever we make a mistake, that we have to make things right. And I think us doing that undermines the reality that God has already made things right with us and that we don't have to do it. It's all right. All that guilt, all those sins from past, present, and future, they've already all been nailed on the cross and they're done with. Now, confession is something important to do when we do make mistakes. And all that looks like is God, I agree with you with what I did was sin and I'm going to change the way I think because of it. But it's not saying, God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me for what I did. The forgiveness has already happened with Christ on the cross. And I love talking about this. I've, went, I've taken Bible studies at our young adults group. We break up into Bible studies every Thursday and Friday of five or six people. And whenever we get to do a Bible study on the gospel, I love taking groups through this because I'll see people come into that room and they'll, their face will just be sunken with shame. And you can just see it on them that, you know, they got some stuff in their life that they cannot forgive themselves for. And they cannot stop feeling, feeling guilty for. And it breaks my heart just to see it. And then we go through the, these passages and literally their countenance changes and they realize for the first time, man, God isn't disappointed in me. God isn't mad at me. He's actually proud of me and he loves me. You see, when God looks at us, he sees his son, Jesus. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. All my guilt, all my sin has been crucified with Christ on the cross. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When God looks at us, he sees his perfect son, Jesus. He sees us as daughters and sons of the king. And when he looks at Jesus on the cross, he sees all of our sins being committed by his son. That is the reality of the good news. That is why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And if you've been experiencing guilt, if you've been hearing those pronunciations of guilt lately, I promise you they are not from God. They are from the enemy. The enemy wants us to stay feeling guilty so the power of the cross cannot be realized in us. That is why that, that this, I, this lie that people believe that we're guilty has crippled the church in so many ways. The power of the cross is available to all of us. And the first step is believing the gospel. So I want to invite the worship band to come back up. And we're going to worship. And I want to encourage you to really search your heart and search your mind. Am I allowing myself to feel guilty about something? Am I not forgiving myself? Because the reality is God has forgiven you. And what God, and the thing about God's not pretending that Jesus committed our sins. He's not like pretending that that's what Jesus did. What God sees is the reality. That is truth. What we see isn't. It's God's sight, not ours, that matters. So I'm going to pray, and we'll enter into a time of worship. Lord, we love you so much, and we're humbled to stand before you. You're so good, God. You're so good to us. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. 
Thank you for taking the shame and the guilt and the condemnation and the punishment that we deserved. Well, let us be continually thankful for that as we worship you here and in our daily lives. Let us not forget what you did for us on the cross. Thank you, Lord. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.